join Derek and Yvonne Mulligan, your enthusiastic hosts on The Hipstorians, as we whiz back and forth through time and covering the stories that have shaped our world. With listeners spanning across 39 countries, this compelling podcast will bridge the past and the present in an entertaining, accessible and lively way. Tomorrow may be a mystery, but on The Hipstorians, everything else is history. We explore historical events through interviews with world-renowned authors and historians, deep diving into different eras and uncovering hidden gems. Whether you're a history aficionado or a curious newcomer, we offer something for everyone. So subscribe today to embark on your time-traveling adventure with us, the Hipstorians. Connect with a community that shares your passion for the past and stay tuned for engaging interviews, enlightening discussions and a fresh take on history. So grab that cuppa, get comfortable. Here we go. Welcome, Hipstorians, to another week. Um, a better weather update, it must be said. The sun has shone through for us. And we had a couple of friends over from America there yesterday. And it was a, well, I wouldn't say a glorious day, but it was certainly much better than the wettest July that we've we've had on record. Today, we're going to talk about something that you may not expect necessarily on the Hipstorians channel. We're going to be talking to journalist Michael Thompson about his latest book, Cage Kings, which is in in essence, the history of the UFC. And um, for myself, I probably only really watched any sort of UFC in the last six months. Uh, to think that it has been going since the early 90s was quite a surprise to me. And um, But I did, as a young lad through my teenage years, do some boxing. And um, so I was definitely a big fight fan, but just hadn't tapped into, into the UFC. But I do some karate and some yoga. So I, I do like uh, the martial arts, that's for sure. Um, with me today is Yvonne Mulligan, my fellow historian. Hi. Um, <laughs> Yvonne, so I'm sure Yvonne have loads of questions. The UFC being one of her favorite sports, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> so with with that, welcome, Michael Thompson. How are you Thank doing? Thank you. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate Excellent. it. I came across your your book uh, not too long ago, and I just thought so interesting. The UFC, the history of it. What is it all about? And and it there's an awful lot in there. I mean, there's hmm. a you know, there's a rags to riches story for more than one uh, party. It, it kind of it, it encapsulates, you know, what pay-per-view did for for the viewing public and, and for television at large. And also, you know, how we've moved to a far more gladiatorial um, uh, type of sports that we wouldn't have condoned mm. going back, say, to the 1980s. So I'm sure our listeners will be very interested in how this all came about, really quite haphazardly and, and quite kind of out of your garage type of endeavor in, in the beginning. Mm. Maybe you'll let, let our listeners know a little bit about where it all began. Sure. It's probably simplest to start just with the UFC. I mean, the, the history of prize fighting is is filled with examples of, of people from different martial arts trying to compete against each other to prove which art was the most effective and who was just wasting their time and, you know, kind of com committing consumer fraud. Yeah. Um, basically, you know, it's a lot of petty ego conflicts. But I start the history with Art Davey in the late 80s. He was a marketing executive who was working on a pitch for a client 
a beverage importer that distributed um, Modelo beer, which ironically is now one of the UFC's biggest sponsors. And they, in the eighties, they were looking to expand the footprint of the brand in North America, sell, you know, more beer and sort of re reposition how the beer was perceived by the American consumer at the sort of peak of Budweiser and Coors. So he came up with the idea of doing a fight series. He, you know, had a military background. He had served in Vietnam for a couple of years and he practiced Muay Thai a little bit himself. He had learned some Muay Thai as part of his uh, combat training before going to Vietnam. And while he was stationed in Vietnam, he remembered hearing these stories about people going on recreation leave to Bangkok and seeing all these bizarre kind of, you know, circus battles almost with these tiny little Muay Thai fighters fighting gigantic Indian wrestlers and, you know, hearing these unbelievable stories of the, the Muay Thai fighter being able to beat the wrestler through, you know, the magic of leg kicks and, and distance management. So as he was thinking of ways to get people interested in beer, he started thinking back on those sort of like martial arts mismatches or, you know, let's say test matches. Um, and he decided to, to do a whole tournament out of it. And he went and he pitched it to the, 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 um, Modelo people, they dismissed it in a, you know, a handful of seconds in a conference room and sort of asked for the next idea. And they sort of just moved on, but art, he had spent months researching this and he kind of sold himself, you know, it's a line I use in the book. He created a pitch that was so good. He sold himself on it. And eventually he just couldn't stop thinking about the idea of, of how successful this tournament concept could be. So eventually he quit his job and lived on his savings for a while and tried to kind of just uh, make the, the production happen on his own. And eventually he got connected with a production company, New York Semaphore Entertainment Group, that specialized in pay-per-view. And they were really looking for original ideas for series that could be sort of repeatable and not just like one-offs, like a, a Rolling Stones concert pay-per-view or a night at the New York opera, um, but stuff that could, you know, replay like professional wrestling or something like that. And they really liked the idea and they, they helped uh, invest in the early UFC and they became partners in 1993. And, and it, the whole thing kind of just hit the ground running from there. And it would be true to, to say as well that like this would not have flown on any of the regular cable channels. There's just no way they would have shown it. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, Art, Art tried, he, you know, in his memoir, he writes very creatively about um, trying to sell it to ESPN and Prime Ticket, which was a, a local Los Angeles-based sports network, um, and Showtime, which had a, a heavy presence in boxing at the time, and everyone just turned him down. That was part of his pitch to Semaphore. He called, and, you know, Campbell McLaren, who was the executive um, who took the pitch initially, <laughs> remembers how theatrical art was when he he sold it to him he was sort of like Campbell they all turned me down everyone said no you're my last hope you gotta you gotta you know give me a lifeline here you know in a lot of ways people were rightfully skeptical of the idea too because it as I write in the book the the early UFCs came together very quickly and there wasn't a lot of legal due diligence behind it they went from agreeing to co-produce the first UFC to actually going live on air in uh, about six months time. Right. So that's finding the fighters, getting the camera crews, creating the branding, 
hiring the referees, writing the rule set, you know. I'm trying. I'm trying to find a venue, right? That would actually yeah. host host the fight. It was uh, Denver was the city that uh, allowed it to go ahead first. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, they were originally considering doing it in Brazil because you know one of Art's partners, Horian Gracie, was Brazilian, and Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, or you know they call it Gracie Jiu Jitsu, was such a fundamental part of the concept, and they really, you know, Horian wanted to prove that Gracie Jiu Jitsu was better than all the other or more effective, let's say, more effective than all the other martial arts disciplines. But that wound up being too expensive and complicated uh, in terms of travel and logistics. So Davey found that in Colorado, it was basically legal to have bare-knuckle boxing contests. As long as everyone was above the age of 18, <clears throat> they're in the 70s, the state legislature had rewritten a lot of the laws governing combat sports and there wasn't a boxing commission specifically to regulate any kind of like fighting events in the state so it wasn't that it was legal per se it was just that there was no legal enforcement mechanism to stop them and so you know they didn't deal with anyone in the city government you know the the mayor of denver famously was very angry after the fact he had no idea the event was going to take place and once sort of press got rolling with how shocking and scandalous that first event was you know he was sort of like blindsided by it and, and wanted to you know go after the company very aggressively in part just because no one had really communicated what was going to happen it was it was bizarre. I mean, you had you had what you had, you had sumo wrestlers, you know, taking on little, little skinny guys, and you know, I, I suppose that's where the uh, the Gracie Jiu Jitsu came in, and and they really proved themselves. And sure, Jesus, it's mm -hmm. it's changed the the face of martial arts. I practice Sharon Ru karate, and it's you know, karate these days like oh, geez, it's uh, absolutely uh, useless. I I kind of do it more for the dance <laughs> than I do for the fight, you know, but. Yeah. Um, so what, like, how did you come to all this? So what, what's your, like, I mean, have you an interest in, in UFC yourself? Or were you a fan before you ever embarked on this project? Well, I kind of realized in writing the book, and I, I sort of wrote this, but it kind of came to me rather than the other way around. You know, I, tracking the history of the UFC, it's sort of, I was in the target demographic for the company's entire history. I've I've been smack in the middle. I was a... I was 16 years old when the first one came out. I was a junior in high school in U.S. sort of school terminology. And kind of at each stage of the company's development, you know, my mid-20s, early 30s, that was always a highly lucrative consumer demographic, especially in media, because production companies like Semaphore and then later Zufa, which took over the UFC after Semaphore hit um, hit uh, a lot of financial problems because of all the controversies with the brand. Um, you know, people could charge a premium to get access to 20 year old men because, you know, in part, a lot of men didn't watch television in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s. A lot of young men had sort of migrated to online culture. They'd started, you know, they weren't buying cable subscriptions. They weren't spending a lot of time on TV. They were playing video games. They were connecting to, you know, the internet at night, chat rooms, talking on message boards. And they were kind of a tricky demographic to get. And, you know, this is at the same time that consumer credit was getting more accessible. A lot of people had 
credit cards for the first time in their lives. And they were sort of willing to buy a lot of frivolous t-shirts and extra kind of luxury goods and experiment with like health supplements and all this other stuff to kind of develop an identity for themselves. Um, so even though, you know, the UFC may not have produced the biggest ratings, it had still a very lucrative core demographic. I thought that was an interesting story from a personal point of view, too. It just sort of like captured a bit of what happened generationally as the UFC became popular. What were the larger forces in finance and media and culture, how that sort of helped shape the culture specifically and helped shape the desires specifically of, of a generation I was in. There was a lot of resistance, obviously, uh, you know, up, up as high as the, the Senate. Mm-hmm. John McCain, wasn't it, literally uh, fought against all of this for a long time? Yeah, yeah he, was, he was a senator at the time and um, yeah. he had grown up boxing. He was he had served in um, the armed forces and learned to box, which, you know, famously was part of what popularized boxing in the U.S. in the early 20th century. Everyone learned how to box during World War One as part of hand-to-hand training. And that sort of led to this explosion in popularity of boxing after it had been kind of outlawed in the late 1800s and early 1900s. You know, you had this whole generation of enlisted men coming home from World War I. They all knew how to box and there's this new television format that was presenting it. And so McCain was a huge boxing fan, but there had never, in the US, there had never been a federal sanctioning body or commissioning body for um, boxing. Boxing was always regulated at the state level, but there was no there was no formal federal organization that sort of provided structure and helped guarantee the safety and basic you know working standards for boxers. So that was something McCain really wanted to do as part of his political legacy was create a federal boxing commission. Okay. And as part of a series of hearings he was doing to try and you know, persuade other legislatures, other legislators to get behind the idea. He pointed to the UFC as a worst case example of what could happen if you didn't have federal oversight in combat sports. He was like, they'll they'll do anything. They'll start pulling hair, punching each other in the groin. Yeah. There's no referees, which was right. You know, he got a lot of things wrong about the UFC, but you know, at the time it was very easy to play into people's worst kind of assumptions about stereotypes. Um, And it was just sort of originally almost a throwaway reference. But as the company became more successful, he became more invested in trying to fight against it while also trying to convince people to to support a federal um, combat sports sort of commission, which ultimately failed. As far as the, the sports go, like, I mean, it is incredibly brutal. Now, certainly, I mean, mm. I, I wouldn't, I, I couldn't argue if it, was, if it was any more or less brutal now because by, fighters are, are far better trained. They're, they're, they're more lethal. Um, I know with Brazilian jiu-jitsu, there was an awful lot of submission holes and a lot of ground grappling um, and, and the rounds went on. I mean, this was just, you just got in the ring and, you know, somebody walked out. That was it. But like anything went, I mean, you mentioned groin strikes. Um, you know, people were getting their hair pulled out. Mm-hmm. People were getting knees in the head on the ground. 
ground. They were getting stomped on. And, and again, you had these huge weight uh, discrepancies between, you know, the, the huge guys or heavyweight against some little, you know, karate or Muay Thai fighter, albeit able to handle themselves. It really was in the early days a free-for-all. I mean, to me, looking at it, it, it was it was some some like somewhat comedic uh, mm. in in uh, in how it appeared but it was it was certainly satisfying satisfying a bloodlust really in in wider society because you're saying the demographic that was being uh, targeted were were a demographic that wouldn't necessarily have had a whole lot of disposable income and um, yet they were prepared to to pay pay it out and um, but mm. obviously that, that demographic changed i mean it's like myself i'm 48 now and you know I dip in and out of watching yeah. some UFC. So it, it's there's, there's a broader appeal now. Um, and it, I do like I do wonder what is it? Is it, does it? is it saying something about society at large, you know, the world we live in, that we are steering ourselves towards, um, you know, this type of organized violence? Um, or is it a byproduct of the, the ever increasing violence that we see on the TV shows that that, that we follow? Um, it seems to be everything is always every single thing that comes along on television is trying to you know upstage the last most violent thing mm. that we television and you wonder whether uh, you know, we start getting reality murder shows or something <laughs> <laughs> the rags to riches story is dana white this guy is i suppose as well known uh, as the ufc he is the mm. ufc what were his beginnings how did he arrive at, at having this opportunity because you know he wasn't college educated or you know he 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 mucked about with some fighting but nothing nothing very serious right uh no yeah nothing nothing very serious he, he's a especially interesting character because i think he goes um he goes from rags to riches to riches. He kind of he's a little bit cagey about um, people saying it was the UFC that made him rich because the year before he became UFC president, he, according to him, he said he was making more than three hundred thousand dollars a year from his own um, businesses. He was managing gyms around Las Vegas at the time. He was a personal trainer. He had built a gym in the basement of station casinos where executives that worked at the casino could go exercise in the middle of the workday without having to drive to a gym, you know, halfway across town. So he had, he managed fighters as well. He managed UFC fighters and some boxers in Las Vegas. So, you know, he, he was a hustler from the start. He was very much a sort of, um, you know, a go-getter and he was already sort of halfway to being, relatively rich compared to most people before i i think that's part of what got him what made him seem like a trustworthy figure for the fertita brothers who were these you know casino moguls that wound up giving him capital to take the ufc over in 2001 um and they appointed him president and kind of gave him a long leash to go uh build the company as a as a passion project but really you know before he could make the mega millions and you know now he's he's close to being a billionaire you know he had he had kind of proved that he was able to kind of set himself on the path to wealth as sort of almost a kind of a rite of passage or something his origin story is probably familiar to a lot of people that grew up in the 80s um in suburban american culture 
he was raised by a single mother who, you know, his father was an alcoholic and abusive. When he was very young, the family lived in Florida and his mother decided one night after, after um, an especially violent episode with the father to just leave. And in the middle of the night, she wrote a, a check that would later bounce to get uh, her and Dana and his sister on a, on an airplane to go back to Boston where the, her side of the family was from. And so she lived with her brothers, Dana's uncles near the Boston airport for a few months and set herself up on to start taking nursing courses and eventually uh, worked her way through the ranks in hospitals around Boston. And then later kind of Western Massachusetts to support the family as a single mother and Later, she got a job in Las Vegas, moved the family out to Las Vegas. And that's really where Dana kind of uh, met the Fertitta brothers. It's also where he kind of realized he wasn't a good student. He would fight a lot. He didn't take school seriously. You know, he's very friendly, happy-go-lucky happy guy, but um, it's also very uh, happy to fight. And he fought lots, got kicked out of school twice, and... Um, almost didn't graduate had his mom had to send him back to uh the east coast to live with his grandparents so that he could pass um, his final year of high school and then you know when he graduated he decided he didn't want to go to college he didn't want to do anything else sort of traditional he wanted to be in the fight game somehow so you know he took a series of just you know, workaday jobs. He worked as a bar bouncer. He did, he worked for a, a paving company for a short period. Um, anything he could to just support himself while he tried to learn how to box. He went to a boxing gym, met some people there. And, you know, eventually he realized that was, um, that was not the right path for him. He still loved fighting, but he was not meant to be a fighter himself. It was, it was he saw some older fighters in the gym saw them slurring their words, saw sort of some of the cognitive decline that is really common among boxers. And today you certainly see it with mixed martial artists. And that scared him, it scared him off. So he decided to just get into personal training, use some of his boxing training techniques to teach, you know, housewives and corporate executives that wanted to, you know, have a little vanity, hot body, how to stay in shape and was able to support himself that way. He wound up back in Las Vegas. He reconnected with uh, a high school friend who just also happened to be incredibly wealthy and kind of the rest is sort of history. And, and was it true um, when like, he oh, well, not, <laughs> wasn't ran out of Boston, but he did a runner out of Boston? Whitey mm. <laughs> Bulger's Winter Hill gang were looking for a payout, were they? Yeah, it was pretty normal at the time. I think it's sort of, they wanted some type of monthly payment from the gym that he was working in. You know, they called it a sort of protection payment or whatever. They just, you know, if you did business in their territory, they just wanted some kickback. Dana had been teaching these um, boxing cardio classes and they had some success. Him and his partner um, had had a bit of success. They'd gotten profiled in some of the local newspapers. They were getting more and more people coming into this gym to, to work with them. And 
somehow that it attracted the attention of Whitey Bulger's gang. And so Kevin Weeks, who is one of the enforcers, came in one day and said, you owe us, you know, X number of dollars. I think Dana's sort of changed the exact figure it is. I think it's probably lost to history, but it's something like $2,000 or something like that. Not exorbitant, but, you know, for a 24-year-old who is making ends meet on, you know, a couple hundred dollars a week, you know, it just seemed like an impossible sum. So he... Probably, probably cheaper to jump on an airplane and hightail it out of there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. You know, the only other place he could think to go was back to Las Vegas where his, you know, all his high school friends were. So his old high school girlfriend picked him up at the airport and helped him get up on his feet. You know, he he famously... According to his mother, he he went to a Kinko's and just had business cards printed out for himself and just drove around to every gym in Las Vegas that he could find, introduced himself as a personal trainer, asked if he could get on their schedule to do um, you know training classes or group classes or do individual sessions, just you know, completely bootstrapped it. And eventually he found even more success in Las Vegas that way. It was a very um, receptive locale for him, especially in the 90s. This was sort of peak Mike Tyson, peak interest in heavyweight boxing. And there were a lot of casino executives around town at that point that had deep connections to the boxing industry and that were very interested in the idea of staying in shape. And using a lot of these boxing training techniques to kind of, while they're on the road, going to, you know, take business meetings or travel out of town, things they could do for 10 or 20 minutes in a hotel room yeah. to stay in shape without having to lose their whole yeah. fitness routine. There is a real duality about himself in, in so far as he is a really happy-go-lucky on the on the outside. He does look, I mean, I, even look in his eyes, he, he looks like a kind of cheery type of character. But that hides a, a definite ruthlessness. I mean, you, you mentioned there how he didn't see himself being as being a fighter because of the long-term effects, you know, caused mm. to the brain. Yet he quite happily promotes it for large amounts of, of money and you know there was a there is controversy i mean it is is almost enemy number one or persona non grata amongst quite a few fighters in that in dispute over how much of the proceeds that the, each <clears throat> fighter gets and you know in, in that way i mean that's just ruthless business acumen i you know i, I assume uh, and that's okay but you know there's definitely you know to, to look at him he looks very happy and, and nice but you know, I I, I think un- underneath there's a definite dark side, and probably harks back to his 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 childhood and, and growing up. You know, I, I, I'd imagine. Um, have you met the man? No, I haven't actually. I, the UFC <laughs> did cooperate on a few interviews early on in the book, and we kept rescheduling interviews. I was scheduled to interview him three or four different times. I flew out to Vegas on my own dime two oh. times, I think. Um, expecting to meet with him and some other people in the UFC's production. And, you know, I tried to meet with the Fertitas too, but but eventually that just sort of evaporated. I think, um, you know, that's, that's part of their, their attitude now to the press, which, you know, I think you can see in a lot of different companies, you know, a lot of the, the antagonism more generally people feel about the media 
you know, in America, a lot of it comes from Trump and the sort of fake news kind of spectacle that he's helped create the sort of all the bizarre superstitions and paranoia around COVID and reporting on COVID, the Russian war in Ukraine and everywhere. Like, it's just a, a deeply antagonistic kind of media culture now. And I think a big part of that comes from corporations realizing they don't have to rely on the media anymore to get their message out. The internet, they all have their own platform. The UFC has its own YouTube channel that is has a bigger reach than a story in the New York Times or the Washington Post is going to give them. So if they want to communicate to the public, they can just put a YouTube video out or put an Instagram post out and they have enough fans that those fans will just repost it or circulate it within their own networks and suddenly they have their own self-contained platform and there's no need for outside history or you know storytelling that may or may not sort of dovetail with the kinds of stories they want to tell about themselves yeah it's their loss really though isn't it not to be in your book because that would have been incredible like you know to have their interview but as i said it's just their loss T- tell me this like derek asked you earlier on but i, I can't hmm. remember are you a fan of the ufc fighting yourself Oh, sure. Yeah, I I have watched it almost from the beginning. I couldn't see it when I was 16 because my family didn't have cable at the time. So I wasn't able to watch until 1996 when I went away to college. And then uh, one of my friends in college who had been a wrestler in high school, all of his friends were really into it. And they had pirated VHS tapes of all the old shows. So that was the first time I got to see it. And it was incredibly powerful for me. I was just swept up in it. I think, you know, a lot of people describe seeing Hoist Gracie, this 170 pound, very normal, slim looking male, just dominating all these big muscular people and facing all these scary, you know, kickboxers and karate practitioners and taking punches and just magically choking people out. It it seemed like a magic trick. There really was a kind of like supernatural element to it, not knowing, not being informed about what jujitsu really was, how it worked, what some of the basic principles were, just trying to sort of deconstruct it kind of from the outside in on this sort of third-hand VHS tape. So, you know, I was completely captivated by it. And, um, you know, I think this is all sort of pre-internet um, culture too. And, you know, I had some some trauma in my own past. I kind of mentioned at the end of the book, I had seen my father get very badly beaten by four men when I was young, I was 14. And, um, you know, there's it nothing special about it. It's just sort of an ordinary bit of suburban violence. But I think a lot of people are just, especially boys in America, are just, you know, brought up in this culture where just violence can break out at any at any point. And so I, you know, I felt this incredibly sort of cathartic energy around the UFC, not not necessarily in fantasizing about the fights, but I, I would feel a lot of my own physical trauma response, the sort of like anxiety, the neurosis, it was a safe place to kind of re-experience that kind of trauma that I had had when I was younger and sort of seeing someone I love just getting brutally beaten. I didn't have an easy way to process a lot of those feelings. And so, you know, I could let them out without being sort of ashamed of it. And I could sort of start to examine it, you know, not from the outside in, but from inside the actual feeling. 
while watching those UFC events. So that kind of helped make it feel like even more powerful, even more personal. Sort of I'd, these... I'd, I'd, I'd identify with that because I, I would have I would have taken up boxing really you know I didn't know it at the time but certainly it would have been for very very similar reasons uh, you know and that, that whole family thing and, and things that happen when, when we're growing up and it does it offers an avenue out you know emotionally mm. otherwise as a fan like yourself or for those that that decide to get get trained in MMA and you know such as the the commitment required to the training that obviously it takes a, a lot of troubled kids off the street and gives mm. them something to really you know that they can yeah I said you know lose them lose themselves in um, and and for the like you know our, our own Irish story and Conor McGregor um, mm. you know a guy who came from nothing really I mean honestly the, the guy would have been a nobody uh, um, in, in Dublin if he you know only only for the UFC even his story you know is incredible that he was just so determined to win I couldn't stand him right yeah <laughs> really couldn't stand him yeah uh, and then I actually watched his uh documentary Notorious and the other one I've actually developed uh, more than a modicum of respect just for what he's managed to do for him himself let, let, let's say is it more so then that not far from being just the the, the spectacle of it and um, it's doing something that society needs or that that mm. young men need and and maybe more so now than ever i know we're kind of veering off history and getting into a little bit of a psychology here but men today i suppose are quite confused or certainly young men more so mm. even, even you know my as to, as to what it is like you know what is being a man the goalposts have shifted considerably thankfully we've moved away or we hope we're moving away from misogyny you know definitely this side of the pond for sure i mean things have changed so much in our in the last 25 years it, it, it's incredible maybe yeah maybe maybe that's it we really need this to discover discover our, our manhood yeah because well I was listening to another podcast earlier on called Align and the two guys oh, yeah. uh, men's yeah. they were talking about and they've got a, an Instagram page men's talk and mm. they were talking about it that they fantasize about an intruder coming into their house and mm. just like so that they could feel manly of how they would get rid of this intruder like you know what I mean and that's one of their big fantasies of how they would beat this intruder up um, <laughs> right. and I, I get it we all have different different weird ones like you know mine is um, I'm petrified of zombies <laughs> <laughs> no I know I know zombies don't exist yeah. but no matter where I live I have to figure out what's the escape route from zombies you know <laughs> Um and yeah, but going back to uh, Conor McGregor, like I'd have no interest in boxing, UFC, fighting, wrestling, you know, anything like this. I would avoid it. Like, I don't like looking at people hurting each other. I don't even mm. like horse racing when the horses have to jump over hurdles. I can't handle it whatsoever. But um, for this podcast, I had to do a little bit of, you know, research or otherwise I would have sat here extremely <laughs> quiet mm. and um, lost. So I watched uh, a couple of YouTube bits and pieces on Dana White. I've read a couple of your chapters in your book, haven't finished it. And I watched Conor McGregor Notorious and I was shocked at mm. my reaction. Right. Because after watching him and all his hype and him bigging himself up, which is kind of annoying, but you can understand that he has to get into this, you know, frame of mind. By the time it came to him in the ring fighting, I was cheering him on. I was like, go on, Cutter, go on. 
you know, and I was like, holy shit, have I done a complete U-turn here of someone that can't or thought I couldn't stand any of this was then egging him on to go for it. Like, you know what I mean? So that he wouldn't lose. Mm. And that shocked me to the core. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of a testament to what the UFC has become now. It's very different from the early days when it was kind of a one night tournament you know, I sometimes compare it to like climbing Mount Everest or something. A lot of those early contestants or fighters were like, you know, they were just hurling themselves into the wild, seeing like, can I make it? Can I fight three times in a night and not break and just survive? And it was too much for almost everybody. And there was so much bad luck involved. It wasn't really a sport in the way we think about it today, but today it really, it has become a sport. And like other sports, that means it is in essence, a storytelling platform. And that's one of the things the UFC has been really successful at. Like I was saying earlier with the creation of this sort of self-produced media bubble they have around themselves now, where it's not just the fights. In fact, the fights are the smallest part of you know what they do in a lot of ways it's sort of telling the story and setting the frame around that 15 minute fight or 30 minute fight 25 minute fight to give people in the audience a vision of what's at stake there's always going to be an irony in that because there's there's never anything at stake there it, it is a pure apparition it is pure projection of the ego at the highest level that is then tied to this sort of this prosperity fantasy people have, you know, particularly in the U S but Connor is an avatar of this, the rags to riches story, where if you commit yourself and you sacrifice enough, you will succeed. And that success is measured by the amount of wealth you can accrue. So we have this tight relationship between being physically dominant over other people that's accomplished by sacrifice, by cutting yourself off from other forms of sort of pro-social productivity. Can't be a plumber. That's not, that's a wasted life helping people like have decent plumbing. That's not, you know, great people don't do that. What a, what a stupid way to spend your life. Instead, you should just live in your parents' house and, you know, sleep till two in the afternoon and then go train till midnight in a gym and then fight in your coach's you know, regional cage fights, you know, for 200 euro a shot, you know, it's, it's kind of a topsy turvy world, but what's at stake is this fantasy that he's becoming the fullest version of himself while sort of going on that way. And the more true you can be to yourself, the bigger the checks are, because then you attract a crowd because, you know, oh, he's proving that wealth comes from, you know, cutting yourself off from all of these pro-social practices and traditions, even embracing the ego. Part of what was so scandalous about Connor was how confrontational and dismissive he was with his opponents. It violated a lot of norms about being respectful and being having good sportsmanship and just dismissing your opponent, saying they're nobody, especially, you know, that really peaked with the Jose Aldo fight, you know, it was a Undefeated in 10 years, he had been a part of the sport when there was not a lot of glitz or glamour involved, you know, even even more than Connor, you know, he had been homeless for large parts of his early career He'd slept on the gym floor, he had traveled, you know, more than a 1000 miles away from his family home to pursue this dream of becoming, you know, a mixed martial artist. 
And, you know, he hadn't gotten all the payoff that Conor McGregor had, but as an athlete, he had accomplished even more than Conor had. It was just no one was watching. And, you know, Conor just said, he's nobody. He's nothing. He's a bum. He's like, he just, and you know, that's shocking. It's a similar kind of bravura that you see with a lot of people today, not just, you know, Trump is certainly like an avatar of it, but like this freedom to just insult people and just have whatever you say, like, you know, all these like condescending nicknames about, you know, <laughs> you know, lion Teddy Cruz or whatever, like sleepy yeah. Joe Biden, like all these different sort of insults. You can just speak a reality and oftentimes a taboo kind of a vice oriented reality into into being just through the power of your own ego. It's sort of a, a very hedonic collective social experience to go through. Yeah, and it's I'll... very easy to go off the rails too. I mean, you yeah. know, it's aspirational in the beginning, but I think if you look at what Conor McGregor is going through now, I think mm-hmm. you could also argue it's really cost him a huge chunk of his soul. He's a very yeah. lost figure now. He isn't that aspirational person anymore. He's sort of been corrupted by his own success. That's very true. That's very true. Very uh, succinctly put. I think uh, a lot of the hype is certainly required, though, as well, just for because uh, given the length of some of the fights, you're not exactly getting great value for money. I think that I, I, I right. watched I, I watched the last one. Justin Poirier was the the, the main yeah. event, and and Justin Gaeth, uh, and that didn't last very long at all. But what what I did like about that though was as soon as the ref realized um that Poirier was knocked out you know he slides across very dramatically <laughs> right. the canvas to get it's in an action movie yeah yeah because yeah. like some of the other ones that I mean that it that has changed an awful lot hasn't it with with the rule book and and you know that that but still the ground and pound man that it just when you know I know when Yvonne was watching any of it like she just it it's it could be hard to watch some of that with some you know defenses on the ground almost and just bashing away with the forearm or, or, the, or, the, or the elbow and things like that. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's quite rough. Who was it um, that you wrote about in your book that said um, more blood? They wanted to see more blood in it. Was that Dana? That's, that's Dana, yeah. That was yeah. a note he gave to one of the video editors who was producing the, um, they call them barkers, these sort of short video montages that play before each fight during the event. It's about one to two minutes, depending on, on where the fight is in the event, if it's a main event or whatever. Uh, where where do you see it going now in in the future? I mean, is is this is it the end of traditional boxing? Do you think? Where's the zeitgeist at at the moment? Is it is it all UFC and this is the future of prize fighting? Do you think? No, not at all. Actually, I, I think it's been very good for boxing in a lot of ways. Is you know they were sort of antagonistic towards each other in the '90s and early 2000s. You know, there's a lot of box. Frank Warren was especially dismissive of it. It was a popular villain in Dana White's mind. He tried to, Dana challenged Frank Warren to have a, a boxing match with him to kind of prove <laughs> the UFC was was a, a valid sport. But, you know, it it's, it's grown the prize fighting business to an even bigger level than it had been. Previous, I think, you know, in the 90s, it was pro wrestling and boxing. That was kind of it. And then the UFC kind of stormed in. And now you have, you know, YouTube boxing, like Jake Paul, you have jujitsu tournaments. Jake Paul. Paul. That's another topic altogether as well, isn't it? That's insane. Yeah, yeah. 
he won even, he? He, he beats uh he beats, he beats everyone yeah yeah right okay. yeah, he's undefeated well his last one really but... really well considering like again well you know where he's come from and okay like you know he's a prime example of youtube in- influencer you know and um i've young kids that would be mm. all over jake paul and his prime drink and everything like this and like you know i was watching some documentary on jake paul and the kids were like what you're you're interested in jake paul and i'm going uh no but i i was enthralled to watch it he messed up and then came back as a fighter he's actually yeah. pretty good at it isn't he yeah i mean he is I mean, that's an interesting arc. He's he's doing the same thing Conor McGregor did. It's just sort of they'll laugh at you at first, but if you fully commit yourself to it and just stay the path and be disciplined and show up for training and work with the best people and trust yourself and your development, eventually you will succeed. And that success will, you know, be accompanied by wealth. But it, I mean, it's an interesting trajectory because you don't see people like that doing that with like nursing school or whatever. No. Whereas like, I'm going to, you know, they, they said I was a Disney YouTube star. Well, I'm going to be a nurse now. No, and watch them laugh at me. Like it's not, it's always with these sort of vice oriented, hyper taboo kind of disciplines like boxing, some prize fighting here's here's one for you as well how much how much does a a can or a bottle of prime retail for in the states oh i have no idea i don't even think i've seen it on the shelves here probably three bucks yeah, it's really three, three books would be what one euro fifty maybe uh, no three like no no it'd be about two fifty two two fifty yeah yeah well for in euros um prime was selling here for ten euros for a bottle, like a per single bottle. serving, if, yeah. if you can, so, some as high as twenty. If you can, oh my get, god, you could drive oh, around wow. here in Northern yeah. Ireland and you won't find it. I was up in Enniskillen uh, about two weeks ago, looked in every shop, nowhere, nowhere to be found. The kids, you know? the kids were obsessed with yeah. getting it here because of all the hype on yeah. on on Instagram or YouTube. You know that they have to get this Logan Paul, Jake Paul drink, like you know. Um, yeah, have you tried it? It's disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> it's foul. Like, you know what I mean? I was like, guys, you haven't tasted anything. Like, you know, this is really yeah. I'll get you. Does bottom. it work? Does it work? That's the question. Did you did it wake you up? No. Feel alert. No. Wired. No. I, no, I, I, espresso will do that. Yeah, you know, but I, I literally <laughs> took a sip of it and, and was like, nah, that's putrid. Like, you know, but yeah. uh, again, it's all just media and marketing hype. Bringing back, you know, like obviously, um, and a bit of research, I, I came across some stories and, you know, sad ones, you know, where it uh, ended up getting brain damage. It's quite a bit in, of that, right? In, oh, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I suppose that that is the thing. This is all testing ground for what is going to happen. The brains of all these UFC fighters, like it's gone, obviously, from the, the jujitsu style of grappling. I know it's very much a part of it. I know when you get into the grappling, it's less of a spectacle. And um, so I'm sure it's probably encouraged that you're on your feet and doing the, you know, your roundhouse kicks and, and your side kicks and, and, and everything like that. I suppose the, the fighters are very, very well rounded now. But the force mm. of the shots that they take to the head are absolutely cruel yeah. I, I you know it's, i i know it doesn't really yeah. yeah you can hear, hear the, the heads head snapping back it does appear that it's a that that it's here to stay um it was a riveting read i have to say cage king so uh do do check it do check it out folks it's it's a story of of where we are today it's a story of youth and young manhood uh growing up in uh, the 21st century i'd posit that it's a bit less shady uh, than uh, than boxing would I be right 
Well, I, I mean, the <laughs> UFC is being investigated by the FBI right now for gambling. Uh-huh. It's very right, okay. right. Um, illegal gambling. The coaches betting against their own fighters and hiding information about injuries. Right. And it sounds like the investigation is only expanding. So, Oops. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think it just caught fight. Fight sports are just inherently, you know, they attract vice. They are a vice. Violence is a vice. And, you know, it it draws people that are eager to capitalize on vice. So I think the one thing that UFC had over boxing was that it was consolidated around a single company and a single brand for a large part of the sports history where boxing never really had that single brand. It's always been split apart with the different sanctioning bodies yeah. and different promoters have had different fighters. So there've been competing narratives about who the best is at what weight, you know, in what division, what sanctioning body UFC sort of had a singular company and i think that came with a responsibility to make sure the lawyers dotted all the i's and t's so at least outwardly there is an appearance of of propriety but you know they're subject to two antitrust suits that are ongoing right now there's this uh, fbi investigation into gambling in the ufc and mixed martial arts more broadly so um i the, the, I would say the jury's out. So. Yeah. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. More, more to follow. Watch Let's this space, and we'll we'll have a sequel to to, to the book. Then, just uh, what was the most shocking thing that you discovered while writing the book about the UFC for for yourself? I mean, I was surprised by how much success. You know, there's there's a lot of mythology about the UFC, and there's a lot of sort of self martyrdom, specifically from Dana White and the Fertitas about. Um, how much money they were losing on the company. And I think the biggest thing that, uh, you know, really still kind of stands askew to me, I guess it's sort of surprising. But when I was looking into the company history, not of the UFC, but of Station Casinos, which is um, the Fertitta brothers sort of family company. And that was, you know, what their real business was before they brought the UFC. Um, They were making nearly a billion dollars a year, um, at the time they bought the UFC. And so if you if you go watch some of these historical documentaries that the UFC puts out or read some of the stories they tell about themselves, you know, they tell this sad story about, you know, they were in debt $30 million um, trying to save the UFC from bankruptcy over the first four years that they owned it. Nothing they were doing was working. They were trying to, you know, they believed this could be the next big sport of the 21st century, but you know, no one else was buying into it and they were just losing millions and millions. And it just seems like this tragic story. But if you look over the same period that they lost that, you know, $34 million, their station casino company brought in more than $4 billion in revenue. <laughs> so like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> there's, you know, it's almost a rounding error. The, the number of, you know, the amount of money that they had lost um, trying to run what was, you know, they've said it themselves was a hobby business. And I think that's really, you know, it's easy to lose track of, but since this thing has grown so large, but it it was still a a hobby business for them. We're living inside the just sort of a fantasy that some rich person had 30 years ago, just metastasized into this all encompassing sort of like fan ecosystem now, but it was really kind of an afterthought 
you know, it was sort of a side meeting that they would have at the end of the day after doing all of their real work and, you know, something they let their, their weird friend from high school who almost, you know, got kicked, who got kicked out of school twice and they weren't quite sure what to make of him in high school, but he shows up 10 years later as a, you know, as a pretty decent guy who's making hundreds of thousands as a trainer and a hustler. And they're like, okay, well, let's see what he can do with a little bit of actual capital. Yeah, well, that's that's it. Well, that's every 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 success story, the magic ingredient. There's always a little bit of luck in there somewhere. You know, not to take away from the the hard work and and the risk taking and, and all that. You do need to have the right people at the right time with the right pockets uh, to to serve your your purpose. Um, but it's been fantastic, uh, Michael. Thanks so much. I'm hoping now that you're going to have a nice dry stay uh, in <laughs> Ireland when you get here. And um, we're a little bit far away from you to meet for coffees. So we're in the kind of bang in the center of Ireland and you're going to be right down in the in the very south, but really yeah. beautiful part of the country. So I hope you have, have a brilliant time. Um, yeah. Uh, any any other it. any other journalistic projects in the offing? Um not at the moment. I'm I'm writing a couple of stories kind of adjacent to the book, just like a general uh op-ed piece that should be coming okay. out in a week or two about just kind of summarizing some of the stuff we've been talking about what what the yeah. UFC's success kind of means for our moment in history and what it sort of captures or shows and actually today like hopefully today I'll I'll file another story um about whether or not men and women will fight in the UFC or other mixed martial arts companies like whether that would be possible okay. what some of the legal barriers would be um how it could happen it's happened already like lots and you know if you look at the history of prize fighting men and women fighting has been a pretty consistent um way to attract eyeballs back into the bare knuckle boxing days certainly the catch wrestling days in the late 1800s early 1900s yeah wow Um, God, it's a colorful a, history. Yeah, right. Okay. Never would have thought. Wow. Well, yeah, definitely good. Good stuff there. Good stuff there, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to take that side now, honey? Are you ready? <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, like, I, I don't know if you can see my face, but I'm yeah, quite... I can, good. yeah. Yeah, I'm like, Jesus, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> that can't happen. <laughs> you know, and yeah. Excellent. Well... But then again, I could be on the sideline going, go on and kick the shit out of them. Go yeah. for it. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it happens already. I mean, you, you're one Google search away from seeing men and women in Thailand fight each other in Muay Thai. You know, yeah. There's a Russian mixed martial arts promotion called Epic Fighting Championships, I think. They've turned it into a cottage industry. They do different kinds of intergender. You know, they'll do tag team, two men and two women taking turns fighting in the cage. They'll do, you know, two women versus one 500 pound man, you know, or a father and son team who are not trained fighters versus one woman who's a trained fighter. It's a whole host of just combinations of just, yeah, you know, the weird and wonderful. Yeah, very weird. Not so wonderful. <laughs> it's back to, you know, the 1800, the traveling yeah. circus kind of okay. day, like come into town and throw a hundred dollars down. No one here can beat me. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's dollars for anyone that can come take me out. Yeah, because we're not allowed to use animals <laughs> anymore. So yeah, I suppose yeah. human cockfighting <laughs> is at its best, doesn't yeah. it? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, if Jake yeah. Paul, why not? 
yeah yeah <laughs> you know, everything has a ripple effect you know there's there's a local version of that is Good. Well, listen, I better let it get you back to your packing. Thanks again, Michael and uh, listeners. The book, Cage Kings. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, was that what you expected, Yvonne? I don't think you're you're very trepidatious about doing this episode. All what together. does trepidation <laughs> mean? <laughs> trepidatious. You, you weren't so into it. You're no. Yeah. No, I so I was like, no way. I'm not doing this one. And I was trying to bunk off and do yeah. anything else on a bank holiday Monday. Yeah. Then uh, you, the history of UFC. That's it. Yeah. I even questioned your morals on, is this a history <laughs> podcast? But wow, he's lovely, isn't he? Michael yeah. Thompson. Yeah. yeah. Nice, uh, nice fella. And uh, yeah, good book. And, uh, and probably about time that a history was done on it. But that just goes to show you, folks. Everything is history. You know, you have to understand it. Everything that was done yesterday influences how we behave uh, today and on into the future. Um, everything has relevance in some shape or form to something that has happened uh, previous to it. And what we're doing here on The Hipstorians is we're bringing all this information and all these authors and or, or people who have lived through certain uh, periods in time together to share those insights with us and help us as individuals form our own opinions about the world that we inhabit, the world that we live in. Yeah, no, I hear you. Because like, you know, I suppose up until a couple of weeks ago before we had this interview arranged, no way was I ever going to watch Conor McGregor's notorious or or UFC fight or Dana White. I'd never heard of these people. They're not on my radar whatsoever. And yeah, I suppose I know a little bit more. Well, I know. I think, I think we'll probably be, be clock, clocking off now to go and watch the uh, the sequel to Conor McGregor's Notorious. Uh, it's on Netflix. So yeah, let's go. Let's go watch that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. All right, folks. Listen, have a good one. We'll be back on the same bat channel uh, next week with a new exciting topic and guest. Yeah. Bye from the Hipstorians. See you. I would like to take just a moment to thank all the Hipstorian followers for your support during the first five months of the show. Both myself and Neil are delighted that so many of you are enjoying what we do here. We plan to continue and expand our efforts into the future. As you can probably appreciate, it does cost to produce the show and we have been funding this ourselves. There is a link within the episode where you can make a one-time one euro enjoyment donation and we'd very much welcome uh, any donations at all in fact we will be offering a paid subscription tier more on that later and anyhow if uh, you don't have it don't worry keep tuning in we'll be here <laughs>